Um, we are now at the end of one of Paul's, or towards close to the end of one of Paul's uh, most important chapters that I believe he has written in Scripture. Um, Paul wrote 1 Corinthians 15, and we're going to be in verses 1 through 34. It's a pretty hefty chunk. Uh, for the past few, actually kind of like six weeks or so, we've been in chapters 12 to 14, and they've talked a lot about spiritual gifts. And so we're going to be kind of shifting now into Paul's conversation on the resurrection of Jesus Christ, the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Uh, There is such richness and depth in this chapter. And so kind of a forewarning, I will not be able to get through every single rich part of this text. There are books that have been written just on this chapter. And so um, I won't cover everything, but I'm going to do my best. All right. And so we're going to be reading from 1 Corinthians 15, verses 1 through 34. I'm reading from the ESV Standard Version, just for um, your awareness. But let me start by reading, and then I'll jump right in. All right? 1 Corinthians 15, verse 1. Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I deliver to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve, then he appeared to more than five hundred brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is in me. Whether then it was I or they, so we preach and so you believe. Verse 12. Now if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise, if it is true that the the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins." Then those, who, and then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the firstfruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. But each in his own order. Christ the firstfruits, then at his coming, those who belong to Christ. Then comes the end, when he delivers the kingdom to God, the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power, for he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. For God has put all things in subjection under his feet, but when it says all things are put in subjection, it is plain that he has accepted that he is accepted who put all things in subjection under him. When all things are subjected to him, then the Son himself will also be subjected to him who put all things in subjection under him, that God may be all in all. 
Otherwise, what do people mean by being baptized on behalf of the dead? If the dead are not raised at all, why are people baptized on their behalf? Why are we in danger every hour? I protest, brothers, by my pride in you, which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord, I die every day. What do I gain if, humanly speaking, I fought with beasts at Ephesus? If the dead are not raised, let us, drink, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. Do not be deceived. Bad company ruins good morals. Wake up from your drunken stupor, as is right, and do not go on sinning. For some have no knowledge of God. I say this to your shame. That's a lot. Okay, um, here we go. Uh, let me begin by this way. Uh, stories are one of the most beautiful gifts that we have as humans. Stories are amazing gifts that God has given to us. You know, whether there's a story that's told over, you know, dinner by a friend, whether they are watched on the big screen, or whether they are read on a rainy day. In stories, we laugh, we cry, we are engaged, we are amazed. And stories pull like every emotional string that we have in our hearts. But have you ever heard or read a story that wasn't that great? Like you walk away thinking, that didn't make any sense. Or what was the point of that? Or that was a terrible movie. Often it's because the story doesn't have the proper pieces of a story. Now, uh, if you look on your pages here, this might take you back to grade school days, um, but this is a story arc. A story arc has an exposition or a setting that sets the stage. It has the rising action, which includes the conflict in the story. It has the climax, the, flyming, the falling action, and then the resolution. And if you miss really any pieces of those, uh, that story arc, the story is not only bad, but it just doesn't make any sense. But out of all the pieces of those stories, the most important piece of the story arc is the climax. Without a climax, the story would just be a series of events with no real purpose or goal. The climax gives the story its direction and its meaning, and it's the resolution of the central conflict, the huge battle, the final showdown, the ending of the story's plot. Without the climax, Jack and Rose's forbidden relationship on the seeking Titanic would be left unanswered. Without the climax, Harry Potter would not find out that Lord of Voldemort was alive and trying to regain his power. Without the climax, Simba would probably still be singing Akuna Matata and never confront his uncle Scar. Without the climax, we wouldn't know if Frodo ever dropped the ring into Mount Doom. Without the story, any story would be incomplete. And in the same way, without the resurrection of Jesus Christ, the story that we have here in Scripture would also be incomplete. Without the resurrection, our own individual stories would be purposeless, tragic, and quite hopeless. So what Paul does for this entire chapter is argue that the resurrection of Jesus Christ changes everything. It is the answer to all of our questions, the solution to all our problems, the victory over all of our conflicts, and much, much more. So today, as you see the main question that I have for today, I want to answer this question. 
Why is the resurrection so vital to our Christian faith? And I'll, you see the three answers that I have, and I'll go through them one by one as I go through this text. So let me go. Number one, why is it so important to our faith? Number one, without the resurrection, we cannot have received and believed in the gospel. If you look at verse 1 of your text, just look here with me. Paul reminds the brothers and sisters in Corinth of the gospel that Paul preached to them, that they received, and that they are actively being saved. Now, this might not seem like a big deal for us, but Paul here is clearly defining how someone receives the gospel. They are first told about the message, then they receive the message and stand in it, which means that they believe in the gospel and are choosing to live by it. And then through the message, they are being saved. And what's utterly important in the verses here is that the gospel is a message. It literally means good news. It's the climax to the grand story that has the power to save lost and broken people like you and me. As Paul wrote in another letter in Romans 1.16, he says this, For I am not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes. The gospel is not a religion. The gospel is not a list of rules to follow. It's not a political agenda or a mission statement of some organization. It is not a self-help model even. It's a message that has the power to save. But what exactly is the message? What are the contents of this message? Paul explains it in verse 3 through 6. Now let me just read it again. Verse 3 to 6. He says, For I deliver to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that He was buried, that He was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, and He appeared to Cephas, which is Peter, then to the twelve, then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. There is probably no better summary, I believe, in the Bible of the climax of the Bible than what Paul is giving here. First, he mentions that Christ died for our sins. Humanity was dead in our sins. There was no one right with God, and we all deserved eternal death. But for Jesus, who knew no sin, who came to earth, fully God and man, became sin on a cross as our substitute, so that we who were supposed to die could become the righteousness of God. The sinless lamb, as scripture says, bore our penalty so that we would be forgiven. Then he was buried. And Paul states that clearly because he needed to remind them that this wasn't some just magician's trick that Jesus was doing, but that he actually died, that there was a grave, and that his physical remains were in that grave for three days. But then, as we celebrated on Easter, he was raised in three days according to the Scriptures, that this was planned from the beginning of Scripture, that God would rescue humanity and defeat all sin and death by conquering them on the resurrection, or through the resurrection. God's power was greater and is greater than sin and death itself. So his resurrection meant that sin and death do not control us, but we are free to live according to God's ways and have eternal life in him. And then lastly, we can't miss this part, he appeared in verse 6. Jesus appeared to Peter, disciples, James, which is Jesus' half-brother, and Paul says 500 witnesses. Why all these witnesses? 
Why is Jesus' appearance so important for Paul here? Because you have to remember here, Paul has written this letter around 53 AD to the Corinthian church. Jesus died and resurrected around 33 AD. So it's about 20 years since this happened. So these witnesses, a majority of them, they were still alive. If those people in Corinth wanted to, they could probably find a witness and ask them, did they really see Jesus? Because back then, there was no video footage proof there. The clearest way to prove something back then was a personal, individual testimony. So Paul is saying, we have over 500 testimonies of those who've seen the physical resurrection of Jesus Christ. So you see here, this gospel message wasn't first told by Peter or by the disciples or Paul, but it was Jesus, the living, resurrected King, who said to all of these witnesses, I am alive. See my hands, see the scars. Do you now believe that I have defeated death, that I reign over death, and that I am He? I am the Messiah, as He would say. And what's fascinating about these verses, if you look at these verses again and notice the verbs of this gospel summary, Paul writes, he died, he was buried, he appeared. They're all passive verbs. That they happened and then they were completed. But for that verb, he was raised. <clears throat> Paul uses the Greek verb tense of the perfect tense verb, which simply means it describes a completed action which produced results back then, but are still in effect all the way up to the present. <clears throat> Excuse me. <clears throat> Therefore, for this verb, and Paul is very intentional here, Jesus was raised 2,000 years ago, but he remains raised even today. <clears throat> Jesus was alive and still is alive today. Therefore, when we receive and believe in the gospel, it's only because the resurrected Jesus, who is still resurrected and seated in heaven, shared that message to others first, and then they shared it with others, all the way 2,000 years later, where someone shared that message to us. And as Paul mentioned in verse 10, this is only by the grace of God, because God's grace is so amazing that generation after generation after generations, people share this message and people are able to receive it and believe it. By grace, we receive a message we did not deserve or earn. Instead, we deserve judgment and death. But because of God's amazing love for us, we receive this beautiful message, giving us new life and hope not found on this earth. So in these first 11 verses, Paul really just explains the gospel clearly to the Corinthian church. This is the gospel you believed. This is the climax to the story. And you can't take it out of the story because it doesn't make any sense. But then Paul goes back and says, what happens if you do? What happens if you take the gospel or take the resurrection out of the gospel story? And so Paul begins to make his argument in verse 12 and on to what's at stake if you subtract the resurrection from the gospel. Because just context here, most likely the Corinthian church, there were people in the church who were denying that there was some sort of physical resurrection. That once we die, that someday 
that Jesus would resurrect people back to life again. They were not believing that. And so Paul was addressing this particular issue. They, they thought that people resurrected just spiritually. And so they were even potentially denying that Jesus was raised again physically as well as spiritually. And so then, what happens if you take the resurrection out of the gospel story? Which leads me to my second point. Without the resurrection, when I would say even the physical resurrection, the gospel is a fraud. In verse 12, uh, again, this gives the context of why some didn't believe. But if you go to verse 13, Paul says, if the dead aren't raised, well then, that means Christ isn't raised either. And then Paul goes on to list, he's kind of like going rapid fire here, of what the implications are if there is no resurrection. So in verse 14 to 19, let me just kind of summarize it here. Verse 14, he would say, if Christ was not raised, then our preaching, that what I've done for, for a large portion of my life for Paul, all that I was preaching was useless. And your faith would be in vain. There would be no point of meeting here. There were no point of starting churches. There's no point because our preaching would be in vain. In verse 15, he continues, not only that, then every person who preached Christ would be liars. They would be liars if the resurrection was not true. We would be misrepresenting God. And then verse 16 to 17, additionally, our sins, we would still be stuck in them. We would be unforgiven. We would be enslaved to sin, and sin would still own us. Forgiveness would be impossible. In verse 18, he continues, then it also means that those whom you love that died, who are in the grave, you will never see them again. There is no hope. There is no victory over death. There is just plain death if there is no resurrection. And then 19, verse 19, he says, Ultimately, if we as Christians just have hope in this life alone, we are to be most pitied. And another translation for that word would be, we would be the most miserable people in the world. So in summary, if you take out the resurrection out of the gospel story, you end up with the faith that is empty, that is futile, that is false, that is hopeless, and that is pitiful. Good news would no longer be good. It would no longer be any news worth sharing. It would simply just be a waste of time. Now, this might seem pretty obvious to you, like this is very much the important part of Scripture. This is why many of us are here and who are Christians today. Um, but let me bring this a little bit down to ground level. And let me do this by asking a question. How do we live our lives without the resurrection? Like practically, how does that look? Well, I'll be honest, this happened to me this week. <laughs> Um, these past few days were a bit chaotic for our family. Um, on Wednesday, our second, Josiah, was sick. Uh, he got sick. Ezra, our youngest, was not doing too well. And uh, Sophia and I, my wife, uh, we were getting some body aches and a fever. And so here we go. The whole house is getting sick. And then by Thursday, it got worse. Sophia was knocked out. Josiah couldn't go to daycare. Ezra had to stay home with me. And I wasn't even feeling that well. So I had to cancel my meetings. I had to, you know, I couldn't get really much any work done. And I couldn't even rest myself because I had to take care of uh, our two youngest. And then Friday wasn't much better either. It was pretty much similar in the same way. And there, you know, I didn't want to ask for help because I didn't want to get other people sick. And so we, you know, did the best I could. 
And so I tried to do like five things at once. And no matter how I was feeling, I just needed to get it done. I had to drive the one kid, Matthias, her oldest, to school with the other kids in the car. I had to take care of them. I had to, you know, I tried to answer some emails in the car. Probably not a good idea, but I did that. I went to the grocery store. I made, a, you know, a late night CVS run. I fed the kids. I cleaned the house. I do some work when they're napping and asleep and on and on it goes. I tried to do everything I could. And I believed I had to do everything by myself. I had to trust in my own abilities, my own strength, my own wisdom and like, you know, amazing super dad abilities. And to be honest, after about two days, uh, I got frustrated. Uh, I got tired. I asked, you know, I, I was like, when is, when is Sophia going to get better? When can our kids go to daycare? When can I sit down and rest? When can I work on this sermon that I haven't even started? It's Friday. You know, I was asking all these questions. And in that moment, as I was working on the sermon, I knew in my heart and in my actions, I had lived in a way that was void of the resurrection. I tried really hard to be a good husband, a good father, and a good pastor. And to be honest, there were good things. But I was trusting in my ways, in my own strength, more than actively trusting and depending on Christ's resurrection power in me. And I'll be honest, I failed to ask Jesus for help. I failed to ask Jesus to heal. I failed to ask Jesus to give me a greater hope that one day all sickness and stress and pain will be eradicated when he returns again. Every time you or I, you or I, choose to live by our own strength, by our own control, by our own resources alone, and take our eyes and heart away from Jesus' empty grave, we are also saying implicitly, I don't need Jesus. Or I don't think praying or trusting in Jesus will make any difference in my life. Yeah, I think scripture is great. Yeah, I think it teaches us really good things, but no one is going to get this done except me. I need to obey. I need to go and do. I need to stop, stop from sin. I, I, I. What the resurrection of Jesus reveals in each one of us is that you cannot do it on your own. You definitely cannot defeat death on your own, let alone dictate anything in your life alone. You need Jesus' resurrection power to bring you out of your self-reliance into a deeper gospel dependency. When you, where you bring every circumstance, every dream, every hardship, every brokenness onto the Lord who has the power to raise the dead. And you trust that through him, he can breathe new life into every single area of your life. Jesus is in the business of resurrecting broken things into life. So you trust him. You pray diligently to them. You let control, you let go of control and self-reliance in your life and say, Jesus, I can't do this on my own. I need your help. And so we let the Holy Spirit, whether quickly or slowly, lead you into the newness of life that only Jesus can offer. And if you don't, well, your gospel, your way of life, the way you're living, it will kind of be like a fraud. 
And at, at a conference that I went to uh, a couple weeks ago, um, one of the breakout speakers said this, and, it sticks, and it, it's sticking with me, and it's a reminder just of, of this truth. He said to a bunch of leaders, he said, live your life in such a way that without the gospel, your life wouldn't make any sense. Live your life in such a way that without the gospel, your life wouldn't make any sense, especially to others looking at your life. In that same way, when we are living in a resurrection, when we live with Jesus' resurrection in mind, some of the things that we do, that we trust God, that we pray for, that we hope in, will not make any sense to others who do not know of this message. That is the way that we are to live in the resurrection. Now, number three, let me move on to this last, um, why is the resurrection so vital to our Christian faith? Um, I'm going to summarize a lot here, but simply it's this. With the resurrection, we confidently wait for a future hope. From verses 20 to 28, there's a lot of theology in here. But basically, you know, this is a sermon in itself. But Paul is basically showing that for those that, um, Paul is showing that it's not only that Christ has risen from the dead, but that we, if we believe in him through faith, will also be raised from the dead. And Paul uses this kind of this uh, fancy word here is federal headship example here. A uh, federal headship is basically like an ambassador or a president. It's someone, uh, it's an individual that represents and speaks on behalf of an entire person. And so for us, as we see in scripture, the story of scripture, for humanity by birth, all of us, our federal head is Adam. At, first one is Adam or Adam and Eve, you can say it that way. And for them, they first brought forth sin and death. But there is also a second federal head that Christ, through faith, comes eternal life. And so if we believe in him, now no longer is death our end goal, but eternal life is our end goal. And every human being that is united to Adam at birth, but then when you believe in the gospel, Christ is now your head. So as Paul writes later on in 2 Corinthians 5.17, it makes sense because he says, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. And then Paul continues on going through this, ex explaining that what happens is that when the resurrection, when that day is not here yet, that day hasn't happened yet. And so he kind of goes into this um, future looking that the resurrection happens later on, that there is a delay in this. And right now, even for the Corinthians, even for us now, we're in this period of waiting and delay. We are waiting for Jesus to finally destroy all dominions, all powers, all idols, and to be subjected under Jesus' feet, where one day death will not be a temporary defeated, but death will be eternally defeated once and for all. And the picture that Paul also is reminding us of is found in Revelation 21, 3-5. And let me just read that to you. It says, um, this, is John the, this is John saying this. He said, And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people, and he will dwell with them. And they will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. He who has seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. And as beautiful as that sounds for a future day, we are still waiting. And I don't need to explain that further because I believe there is probably a moment in your week 
where you are waiting for this day to come, where you're waiting for something to end or a brokenness to end or a sickness to be healed or a job to be fixed. We're all waiting. And waiting is difficult. We Wishing that God would give joy, and that is what Paul is talking about here. It's important to remember that our waiting is never in vain. That when we wait, He's, rem- he's reminding us that we have to picture the resurrection. And if we go through the verses of 29 to 32, Paul then summarizes here. He says, it's not in vain. He's saying that if the resurrection is not real, he's saying in verse 29, he says, if the dead are not raised, why am I literally putting myself in danger every hour? What, what do I gain, humanly speaking, if I fought every false teacher and opposing ruler in the known world, risking my life for this message? Because if that's the case, it would be much easier to just enjoy this life because death is inevitable. And just kind of a little, little snippet here. In verse 32, when he talks about fighting those beasts of Ephesus. It's just the imagery of kind of the, the crazy false teachers that he was combating in Ephesus. It's not actual beasts that he was fighting. Uh, But basically, Paul is saying, if any of you have hope in this world, we, uh, basically, Paul is saying that if we only have the hope that is in this world, we aren't much different than the many other people who are living in this day and age, in this world. And when he says that line, we eat and drink for for tomorrow we die, that's a line I actually find in Isaiah when the people of Israel essentially refused to repent before God and they just partied because who cares anymore? We're just going to party until we die. But the resurrection doesn't just change our future destination. It also changes the pathway on which we arrive at that destination. Let me just say that again. The resurrection doesn't just change our future destination. It also changes the pathway on which we arrive at that destination. We confidently wait, not passively, not just waiting for Jesus to come back, but we wait actively, living out this new life that is freeing ourselves from sin by being filled with the fruit of the Holy Spirit, obeying God's commands in love, grace, kindness, righteousness, and justice, because we are heading to a hope where we will meet our resurrected king one day who will bring resurrection power in every crevice and corner of our life. That's why Paul, at the very end of this passage, warns the people in Corinth again. He says, quite literally, wake up, you drunk people. Pay attention. Do not go on sinning like you've done in the past. Remember the resurrection and walk the narrow path. Do not get mixed up in bad company and people. A little mold can spread throughout all of you. Take the path of the resurrection. Now, there is a lot that I could share in these 34 verses. But as we're in this room, um, in over lunch tables, and I am really, really hot right now, um, I think kind of a, a, I wanted to try this. You, know, you see on the bottom of your, pa- your paper there, a discussion question. It reads, what in your life are you hoping or praying will be resurrected? And so what I want to do for the next five minutes is for you to get together with someone next to you, um, three or four people, maybe four at max, and discuss or answer this question. What in your life are you hoping and praying will be resurrected? And so take five minutes 
discuss it in your tables. Um, please discuss it in your tables, answer the question, and then in about five minutes, I will wrap up, and I would actually like a couple of us to share their answer, someone who's bold enough, right? Uh, and then I will finish up the sermon. And so get into your small groups at your tables and discuss. Go.
take one more minute. <clears throat> one more minute. All right, I hate to break up good conversation, um, but let's bring it back together. Uh, I am going to take up, I'm gonna make a bold move and ask if, are there any particular individuals who would like to share their uh, answer to the question? What in your life are you hoping or praying will be resurrected? And maybe a little bit of snippet of why. Uh, if you are interested in sharing, I'm going to ask you to come up to share on the mic because it's pretty hard to hear with the fans going on. So, do I have any bold guests to do that? It's not usual to have kind of an open mic. Uh, anyone want to share? <laughs> All right, we have our first. <laughs> We have a priest. Um, and, okay, never mind. Um, so what I think I need to resurrect is um, I haven't been doing a great job with my sister. And, I've, and I think I've been doing a very big job doing a good example for my sister. And, I'm, and she always looks up to me and I love her so much. Morning, I think I need to resurrect how I need to react with my sister. And I'm talking to her, and I want to share that she is amazing, but all she can change the world. And she's so, she is such a nice girl. And if you want to meet her, she's in the kids' room. <laughs> okay, bye. <laughs> Thank you, Abigail. Thank you. There are uh, many relationships in our life that we would hope to see resurrection power bring healing and transformation in there. So thank you so much, Abigail, for sharing. Anyone else? She's the boldest of all, out of all of us, uh, right? So anyone else want to share? Thanks, Melissa.
Hi, my name's Melissa. Um, so the thing that I'm praying for resurrection for and looking for resurrection in is my relationship with my mom, who is, of course, the most important person in my life, and also the biggest trial in my life. Yay! Um, but there's been a lot of movement, and there have been some things that have happened that were bad, but also good, and, um, and I'm really hopeful right now and prayerful and um, excited that Mother's Day is coming, and I get to celebrate her. Thank you so much, Marisa. Oh, yeah, it's a parental relationships, yes. Anyone else? All right, Jackie. Hello, everyone. My name is Jackie. Most of you guys know me. Uh, yeah, Abigail. Uh, mine's not super articulate right now because it's kind of mushy, but um, I guess I would like resurrection and hope for, um, like, yeah. My hope in kind of like what Noah shared is like not doing things in my own strength and my own power and like having faith that God can really provide in ways that are above and beyond what I can do for myself. And I do try to do things in my own power all the time. And this is a really good reminder, um, but also just hope um, or resurrection power in like relationships like most of you know my mom's kind of sick and um and uh even like conflict with others and um even like financial provision and things of that like all types of things but um just knowing that i can't solve all these things on my own and definitely some of these things are not in my power and so yeah just contentment and trust in the lord uh, for all these things Thank you. Thank you, Jackie. Uh, last call. Last call. Um, yeah. The reason I asked this question, and I'm sure you had good discussions in your tables and groups, is that uh, when Jesus resurrected from the grave, he didn't just make a way for us to go to heaven. Uh, there is a lot more that he did in terms of breaking the bondage of sin and conquering death and putting subject to all of the forces, all the principalities and powers and also bringing transformation in your lives, in your relationships. As we've heard, all three of them were related to relationships um, into our own like life journeys and even like in our workplaces and our own struggle with sin and whatever else that has. There is resurrection power available that uh, his resurrection it offers to us through his spirit. And so um, I wanted to finish with this quote. Uh, it's from Winston Churchill. Um, and he, he writes this quote uh, on December 1941. Now, this is when Winston Churchill, he was like the leader in Great Britain during World War I, uh, World War II. And uh, this is the quote he gives when he first heard that the Japanese uh, bombed uh, the American fleet in Pearl Harbor. Because at that point, the American, like America was not involved in the war yet. And he wrote something that was quite odd for his people in that time. But he wrote this because this is actually, it captures beautifully what Paul, what, what Paul is kind of saying too. Um, he wrote this confidently, knowing that because of that 
initiative, most likely what would happen was America would then get involved in the war against Germany, and the conclusion of the war would already be over, that they would win. And he had that much confidence. Now, that war would be very grueling and very painful for many, many years, but he knew that they would win. And he writes this quote. He says, so we had won after all. We had won the war. No doubt it would take a long time. Many disasters, immeasurable cost, and tribulation lay ahead, but there was no more doubt about the end. Being saturated and satiated with emotion and sensation, I went to bed and slept, and slept the sleep of the saved and thankful. And so as we pray and hope and long for resurrection power in our lives, we also sleep with great assurance that the war is already won, that Christ will come again, that he has defeated death and defeated sin for once and for all, uh, and that we can put our trust in him. Let me pray. Father, we are grateful. Um, Father, well, first, first of all, God, I pray for uh, the many of the conversations and the answers to the question. God, sometimes we can talk about the resurrection or think about it and forget that it has implications directly in our lives. And so, Father, I ask, no matter where we're at right now, no matter the answers that we shared, I pray, God, that you would indeed answer those prayers, that your resurrection power would intervene in those places that are hurting, that are broken, that are weary, that are in need, and that you would provide through your spirit power for new life to be birthed. God, we know that new life might take time. It might not even be finished onto the other side until we get to heaven. But we know, God, that you care about making things new even now. And so, God, I pray that as we're going on through this journey, that you would also help our eyes to be fixed on the eternal hope that is given to us, that all the saints throughout the church have known and put their eyes on the hope that you will come again, that you will resurrect the dead, and that you will give eternal new life where you will dwell with man and woman eternally and make all things new, where no more pain, no more death, no more mourning, no more sickness will ever remain, no more sin will remain, and that you will be with us. And so help us, God, to walk in sight of that hope, um, but also walking in the power of your resurrection. And we pray this all in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Amen. Please stand with us.